I'd just like to point out how difficult it is to actually sing in key when I'm sitting next to my father. So, my sincere apologies to the slight flatness of my notes. It really is somewhat difficult. Look, my left speaker's out. Probably but, sing more flat when you sing next to me. Like, that's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. It's, there's a certain challenge involved. But we're going to look at, that's a, that's a non-sequitur. I think all colorblind people can't yeah. sing either. That's really a, non, a non-sequitur into what we're going to talk about. What we're going to look at is Matthew 23. So if you will find Matthew 23, and I was going to broadly cover the... Um, the Olivet Discourse, which is a cool name if you're going to give a sermon. That's a pretty sweet name for one. But um, I was going to do it in one fell swoop, and I realized it just wasn't possible to get at any of the context uh, on the most controversial passage of the New Testament, which is Matthew 24 and 25. At least controversial prophetic passage. At least prophetic if you hold to the persuasion that I hold. Um, well, the right one, thanks. <laughs> so I learned from my father. Humility. Humility. <laughs> uh, true. There's no, there's, no, there's no humility in making false things true. Um, but there's a lot of pride in that statement. So, uh, so we're going to look at Matthew 23 and hopefully gain some context for 24 and 25 and also try to just draw out of that... Uh, rather deep well, something on the life of hypocrisy, what it is and why not to live it, really. Um, so we're going to kind of spend a bit of time, and we're going we're gonna to trudge through the whole chapter, and hopefully it won't be a trudge, it'll be a bit of a sprint, though, and, and so bear with me, we're going to hopefully read uh, the entire text and just make some notes and just, just hang up some anchors so that we can really begin to... to uh, give something our mind to hang on. Give something for our mind to hang on to. Uh, Matthew 23, though, uh, gets right into it with uh, the response to the questioning of the authority of Jesus and by what authority do you do these things? And he he gave three parables, and then they they began to push into this authority and say, well, what about these challenges? And so they give the Caesar's tribute money and the resurrection from the dead and the greatest commandment and. And then he pushes back into them, and uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And what we talked about last week was you will never turn, well, it was two weeks ago, I guess. You will never turn um, voicing submission into actual obedience until you recognize authority when you hear it. You need to be able to recognize the authority of God when you hear it if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and last week we began to look at hypocrisy and how hypocrisy flows from idolatry. If you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know who you are. And that, we're going to continue with that theme tonight, this, this question of who is the Messiah. And because they cannot answer who the Messiah is, they end up as hypocrites themselves because they don't know who they are. Uh, and so he, he begins to lay out what are known as the eight woes then, the eight uh, almost curses, as it were, of these of these Pharisees. And I think we need to just pause really quick, and I'll tell you what a Pharisee is. Pharisee doesn't show up in any literature until Josephus writes about them, and he references them in the time of the Maccabees. And so, what, 130s to 150s? One of the Maccabees. Um, B.C. B.C. And so, Pharisees are really overseeing the transition of Judaism after 
the captivity in Babylon. They're taking Judaism from being a religion of sacrifice. Well, they lost the ability to sacrifice during their captivity. And um, they're really overseeing the transition from a religion of just sacrifice to a religion of um, laws. Uh, specifically, exhaustive laws for every area of life. And that's why Jesus gets into it and says they sit in the seat of Moses, or even earlier when they claim to be the elders of the people. They're the elders of the people because they hold the authority of the laws of the people. In fact, they held strongly to the oral law, which was their authority. They pushed their oral law into all sorts of new areas, adapting it to the times. But it gave them the seat of Moses, the position of the elders of the people, because they held the law, though it was theirs, not Moses's. And so they sit in this seat of authority because they hold the law. If you want to be uh, in a part of the synagogue, the synagogues are run by the Pharisees. If you want to be part of the Jewish community, you have to at least kowtow to what the Pharisees are saying. And so they're bringing about this transition of a law of sacrifices or a religion of sacrifice to a religion of oral law. And which is somewhat important because then they become... um, the keepers of the entire religion. It's, it's theirs, as it were, because they hold the grassroots level. Any synagogue is kind of under their purview. And there were about 6,000 Pharisees during the New Testament area, and they exercised great control over much of the population. Um, and they may well have emerged out of the time of the Maccabees, though. Hard to say. It's just the first reference of them. And so, for our... Uh, for our purposes, what's important to realize is that they are manifestly hypocrites. Jesus calls them out as hypocrites. And I want to tell you kind of what that is um, and why you don't really want to be that. Uh, So I want to dive right into Matthew 23 and we'll kind of hopefully tether out or, um, yeah, just gather out of that something of, of what hypocrisy is. Jesus spoke to the crowd, this is 23 verse 1, and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They hold the authority. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the servant among you shall be your, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This is the treatise. This is the opening statement. Don't be like them. Do what they say. They hold the authority, but don't be like them. And ironically, this is exactly where he left off in Matthew chapter 7. We got through the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends the Sermon on the Mount with the wise and the foolish builder. And this is, this is a similar idea. Don't just be the kind of person who says something. Do it. And now there, of course, it's hear my words, respond to the authority of my words, and actually do what I say. And don't be foolish and not do what I say. Whereas here it's do what they say, but don't 
don't do what they do. And so you're going to begin to see the contrast between Jesus giving a command, saying, do what I say and what I do. This is how you do it. And then the Pharisees do what they say, but not at all how they do it. They're hypocrites. They're not doing what they say. And then he dives right in to these eight woes, these eight curses of the Pharisees, calling them out as hypocrites. And I want to point out two things, really. What is the characteristic of hypocrisy? What's the characteristic of a fake, an actor, a hypocrite? Specifically in regards to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And secondly, how does that contrast with the blessed life? Because, and this is what I'm going to shoot for when we, when we pull back the arrow and really aim at the target. This is what I want to shoot for. The opposite of hypocrisy is not what you might expect. The opposite of hypocrisy, the opposite of being a fake, of being an actor, of saying one thing and doing another, of being the brother who says he's going to be in the vineyard but doesn't show up. The opposite of hypocrisy is not sincerity. It's not integrity. The opposite of hypocrisy is happiness, which you might not think. But the opposite of hypocrisy is happiness. And I don't mean a fleeting emotional state again. I mean flourishing. I mean the blessed life is the opposite of hypocrisy. Happiness is the opposite of hypocrisy. And I think you're going to see that as each of these woes finds its counterbalance in the Beatitudes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 13, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Hypocrites, number one, shut off the kingdom. They don't, they don't just miss worship, but they make others miss it as well. They don't just perform evil, they encourage it. They don't just fail to enter the kingdom. It's like those who, we talked about this weeks ago, stand at the banks of the Jordan River and push everybody else back as well. Don't, don't enter the promised land. In fact, everybody turn around. I'm going to make everybody lose heart. Rather, be poor in spirit. And, they, and I'm actually I'm going to speak broadly from the Sermon on the Mount. And I really feel, and I've, I've gone through it a couple times before, but I really feel like the Sermon on the Mount works itself out in the Beatitudes. And so he gives these eight Beatitudes, these eight characteristics of the blessed life. And then he goes on to explain and expound on those backwards. He goes through the eight, and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount just spells out what those Beatitudes look like in reverse order. He just goes backwards through those. And so I want to draw from what a poor spirit is from the end. He who does the will of my Father will enter. There from Matthew chapter 7. The one who does the will of the Father will enter the kingdom. And that is what it means at least to be poor in spirit. And the illustration you have of that is right there in the beginning of Matthew. Joseph, the father of Jesus consistently does exactly what God tells him to do and wordlessly does exactly what God tells him to do. This is the, what it means to be poor in spirit is to look like Joseph, to wordlessly obey God. You just, yes, I trust that he has my good in mind and you do it. He's poor in spirit. And these people instead are preaching one thing but cutting people off. They're not doing what they say. And then we'll work ourselves, uh, hopefully this will work itself out a little bit more as we go through these woes. Secondly, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. 
Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. The second mark of hypocrisy is pretense. You are a slave to appetite, but you wish to appear to be its master. But rather, and this is what this is the contrast of that. This is the. Um, sorry, there's a cool logic logic term there. What is it? It's uh, contrary. This is the contrary. Rather mourn over your bondage. You need the opposite to pretense. Then, or the the antidote to pretense is mourning. You mourn over this characteristic. You mourn over your bondage. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you wish to be treated. That's what mourning, that's how mourning works itself out. At least in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it works itself out in that golden rule. What does it look like to mourn? Well, you treat people as you wish to be treated. In the... And that is quite the opposite of the pretense which would devour a widow's house and yet seek to be seen as being the master of your appetite. Thirdly, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. The third characteristic of a hypocrite is passion without conversion. You're passionate, but you're not changed. You're more interested in making proselytes than disciples. And the contrast to that is the gentle shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The, to be meek is to be unassuming. Not overly impressed by one's own importance. An unassuming posture that takes from God what he gives. Not the need to supply it oneself. I'm sorry, did some of you not have verse 14? Yeah, that's actually in um, the majority text. Sorry, that's a whole textual criticism thing. Uh, so, sorry, yeah, that's, that's, some of you might have a note in that, uh, that second woe, woe to you. Yes, it has parentheses. It's it's that a it's textual that. criticism. That means that you're the redactor of your the redactor, the compiler of your English version thinks it's not in the oldest and best manuscripts, but that's because you probably have somebody who holds to an eclectic text, which is all of you, unless you happen to have a uh, King James version. Do we have a King James version? I have. Does it have any notes on verse fourteen where it says? Some reliable ones. So yeah, they, they definitely lean the other way. They lean towards majority text. I lean towards majority text. So I've got no problem with it being there. There's a brief lesson on uh, textual criticism for you right there. I think it was there originally. I think Jesus said it. So I'm rolling with it. It's in parentheses in the beginning, but it never ended. There's no parentheses <laughs> ending it? Everything from that point on in your Bible. <laughs> Verse 16, it's parenthesis on this end again. Oh, oh, oh. You mean quotation marks? Yeah, you mean quotation marks or parentheses? Sorry. Quotation marks. At the beginning of every new paragraph of a quote. Yes. Yeah, high school English. That's American English. If you start, if your your quote flows on to a new paragraph, it just has a quotation mark at the beginning of it, not the end. 
Mm. I learned that in a Bible study too. It goes on and on, right there. Yeah, see, it's just reminding. So not only is this a lesson in New Testament textual criticism, this is this is seventh grade. No, no, it's after that. It's seventh grade English and punctuation. Yeah, doesn't he just keeps talking? Bless him. Ah, no. Thank you. Do you know how many punctuation marks there are in English? No. How many are there? Fourteen or sixteen? Sixteen? Um. We can make up some more. Pharisees. Pharisees. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're making a proselyte, you need somebody to depend on you. If you're making a disciple, you're offering somebody dependence on God. Hypocrisy is needing people to be dependent on you. A proselyte is just someone who you need a leech. You, it's... it's um, uh, in counseling situations, you're going to have that a lot where people are needing other people to be dependent on them. Um, and that's right in line with what it means to be a hypocrite, or that's a mark of a hypocrite. You need a proselyte, not a disciple. You need people to need you. Rather, the gentle or the meek are willing to point to somebody else greater than themselves and say, here, here is where the source of life and goodness is. And that's how you inherit the earth, not by making people dependent on you. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple, that, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. A mark of hypocrisy is to be spiritually dull, looking for loopholes instead of keeping one's word. This, in fact, makes you a blind guide. You are leading people nowhere because there is nothing behind your words. The whole problem with foul language oftentimes is that you rob the content behind a meaningful word. And names are incredibly important in, in Scripture. Specifically, you get to this command to not use the Lord's name in vain in the book of Exodus. Exodus fantastically interesting in the Hebrew Bible is called the name of the Exodus is these are the names that's what Exodus is called in Hebrew because those are the first words of the text Genesis is called in the beginning Exodus is called these are the names and it's God going down to Egypt to call his people by name and he brings them out and says, now you're going to revere my name. Just like he went down and said yours when you were in captivity. And said, Sam, come out. I'm calling a people that was nothing. Were nothing. Was, people was. 
and making them my own possession, calling you by name, and he brings them out and says, now you will honor my name and put value behind it. Don't use it in vain. And what does it look like to not use it in vain? Well, it looks like when God comes and calls you, he means something by it. Rather, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Have a sharp appetite, not being sated with emptiness, but being satisfied in righteousness. You need a sharp appetite, not a dull one. Don't be sated with emptiness, but be satisfied only in the righteousness of God. And that is the antidote to being spiritually dull. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, painfully, I would imagine, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. A mark of hypocrisy is this. The appearance of holiness without the heaviness. Now the, the Hebrew word for glory that's so often used of God is glorious. He's a glorious God. It's actually the word, it's just robbed from measurement terms. It means heavy. It means weighty. That's, what, that's exactly what C.S. Lewis is getting at in his book, or his short, whatever it's called, series of small essays. The weight of glory. There's a weight to it. There's something behind this glory. The Hebrew word for glory actually meant weight or heaviness. So this pursuit of glory by the Pharisees and scribes was a pointless endeavor for it completely lacked attention to the weighty matters, the glorious matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness, which were the characteristics of the kingdom. This left them as blind guides. And so what's the, what's the counter... What's the antidote? What's the blessed life characteristic that is to be replace this emptiness, this hypocrisy? Be merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Giving attention to the act of living the values of the kingdom. Be merciful. Give attention to mercy. That's what, it, that's what the happy, that's what the blessed do. The hypocrite ignores justice and mercy and the weight of glory. Whereas the happy man is merciful. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so the outside of it may become clean also. Mark of hypocrisy is sanitized selfishness, the appearance of respectability with a heart of robbery. The, the cleansing is completely backwards. Rather, the antidote to sanitized selfishness is purity in heart. Being so satisfied with God that you patiently allow Him to cleanse you. His goodness will cleanse you from the inside out. There's no reason for this appearance of respectability and the sanitized selfishness. It's simply a mark of a hypocrite and has no place in the happy life. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. A mark of hypocrisy is appearance without life. Or I wanted to say a visage without vitality, but I didn't know if that would go down as well. It just sounded cool. You ever use the word visage, Wade, in your day-to-day speak? Yeah. It's my one for the day right there. I was really glad to hear you pronounce phylacteries. Phylacteries? Phylacteries. I had your back on that one. Chris will tell you all about this. He's into phylacteries. He knows about it. Uh, I tripped over it this morning. <laughs> don't ask me. Don't. I don't even. You're like, uh, it's, it's what you put on your visage. That's two. Okay. You like that? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking for comment. Anybody? Anybody? Hey, but I'm both. Trying to be beautiful without life. It's like a corpse at a viewing. A hypocrite is like a corpse at the viewing. You open it, and it's maybe the best they've looked in years, but there's no life behind it. Rather, be committed to, and this is interesting, peace. And how does peace play out? What does a peacemaker do? It's being salt and light to the world. It's bringing salt and light to the world. That's what a peacemaker does. He offers people peace with God and offers them, in fact, flavor and color and everything that brings joy to life. You season people's life and you bring light to it and you offer them this this full relationship with God as opposed to this empty, lifeless appearance of what's good. It's like being disappointed when you get the most beautiful dish at the, at the, um, the what's it called when you go to a restaurant and you have to serve yourself? Um, buffet. At the Chinese buffet and you look at the dessert table and they always have this really colorful dessert on there with like jello and whipped cream and on it and you get it and you're always immensely disappointed by it because it has no flavor. That's what hypocrisy is. That's hypocrisy right there. You can stand there and be like, hypocrites! Nah. Yes, exactly. You get there. This is not, this is wax. Get this out of here. You hypocrite. I want flavor and I want salt and I want light in my life. And I don't want the appearance of bright colors with nothing behind them. Finally, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Mourning the sins of others while becoming what you despise. Mark of hypocrisy is to mourn the sins of others while becoming what you despise. God seems to be giving them enough rope to hang themselves. And the opposite of this is be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We would never be partners in the persecution of the righteous. 
Well, thanks for that word of self-aggrandizement. Here's how you live the blessed life. Be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And then he, he finishes, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Interestingly, this passage begins in exactly the same place that the Sermon on the Mount ended. There it was, hear these words of mine and act on them. Here it's, hear these words of mine and act, but do not act according to the speaker. Instead, act like the one who is the model of flourishing and humble yourself. Never until you love God like Jesus did and love your neighbor like Jesus did on the cross will you love yourself like the blessed person does and not like the hypocrite does. That was kind of a full sentence. But loving God and loving others flows into that love of self that is the mark of the blessed life. And just a love for self first and primary does nothing but give you the life of a hypocrite. Flourishing then comes in degrees relative to your love for God. And now this is how I want to finish, and I think this is important. And it's been kind of a heavy, lots of characteristics of hypocrisy and lots of counterexamples of what a blessed life looks like. But this is how I want to finish. And this, I think, is going to maybe help you in your interactions with yourself and interaction with others. To know the opposite of something is not the same as knowing the antidote to something. You can say, I see what you look like. Here's what I want you to look like. I, I see that you're a hypocrite. No, sorry. <laughs> I see that you're an empty chair there. I see that you're a hypocrite. I want you to live the happy life. Here's what a happy person looks like. Right? Here's what a happy person looks like. And you can lay it out for them. Let's go to Matthew 5 and I'll tell you what the blessed life looks like. But to know the opposite isn't to know the antidote. You haven't then given, all right, so be different. That's what you're telling me. Don't be what you are. Be something else. Uh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for the real slap on the back there. How do I become that kind of person? Person. And that's why I think it's so important to know that hypocrisy looks like this. And you need this guide of going, all right, I know what hypocrisy looks like. I see it myself. Where is that coming from? It comes from idolatry. So in order to be happy, you have to be a God lover. You have to be a God lover in order to be happy instead of a hypocrite. Now, mind you, there might be people you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis that don't know Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior, but you're like, well, they're not really a hypocrite. I wouldn't describe them as a hypocrite in the class. I mean, I've seen some real hypocrites in my day. And this guy's a pretty, pretty full-on. I like this guy. He's straightforward. He's sincere. He's nice. He's pleasant. Well, this is where it's so important to see the difference between God's natural law and God's supernatural law. Societies are governed by what is self-evident. The natural law of God governs societies. And so people can be obedient to the natural law of God. It's a self-evident principle that murder is wrong. It doesn't have to actually be revealed to you in the scriptures. I think so. 
I think that's a self-evident principle. Or that all men are created equal. That might, in fact, be a self-evident principle that people can be, do honor to. So you can, in a sense, be a lover of God's law without knowing God. So this explains a certain degree of the uh, interactions with people who don't love God. Um, well, they might, in fact, honor his law as they should, um, even though they don't know him personally. And now, there's a lack there, but there's a presence there as well. There's something there that's good. Those who adhere to natural law and the self-evident danger may well be sincere even if they do not love Jesus. But as the one who loves Jesus who can actually know himself and live the blessed life. It takes knowing Jesus to actually know yourself and to actually live the blessed life. To live a blessed life flows from knowing the voice of God when you hear it. That's how you change. In fact, the Beatitudes flow out of the temptation of Jesus which is epitomized in those words of Jesus, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that flows from the mouth of God. So how do I live the happy life instead of the hypocritical life? You live on every word that flows from the mouth of God. You see the authority when it's given to you, and you base your life on the authority of God's word, as opposed to any fleeting thing. Our pushback into our own lives, into others' lives, needs to change. We need to not tell them what to look like, but how to be happy. It flows from the goodness of God, spoken with authority to us in the Word of God. Hang your life on God's goodness, revealed to you in God's Word. That's how you live the happy life. I can tell you what it looks like, but that's how you go about living and that was a lot, but I'm interested in uh, your take on that.